welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Well, hello, church. My name is Melissa Urich, and I am on the staff team here at The Well. Um, I kind of have two parts of my job. One of them is to help lead the King site, um, and we meet every week in person in King City, Ontario. Then the other part of my job is actually to be a family ministry pastor, which means I get to hang out and lead and pray for um, our families, like uh, kids and youth and parents, as they um, learn to love and follow Jesus. And so it's a pretty good gig. I'm so glad to be able to be here with you today and to share with you a little bit. We're in the middle, kind of, of our Advent season. And I know it's. it feels like it's kind of snuck up a little bit, right? But I don't know about you, but there is like a list of stuff that has to happen in the Uric household to mean that it's Christmas. Um, I'm not sure what that could be for you. Maybe it's like a particular food or drink. often feel badly for people who really do love eggnog. I'll pray for you. I, I, I don't understand that drink. Um, but maybe that means Christmas to you you. Um, others of you, it's decorations. And like, you know, we often joke that in my house, Christmas throws up a little bit too early all over our house. It, it usually happens pretty early in November. And that's because I hate November and Christmas cheers me up. Um, but maybe it's songs and music. I actually have a fun fact for you. And, you know, I do this in love, but you need to know that your beloved pastor VJ is actually like underneath a bit of a scrooge because he doesn't like Christmas carols. I'm serious. Like, who doesn't like Christmas carols? It's like not liking puppies or something. You should probably pray for him, but he doesn't. He doesn't love Christmas carols, but maybe you do. Maybe you're like on that, like all Christmas, all the time radio station. And I get that. But one of the things that we have to do in the Yurik household every year is watch Home Alone. Um, Now, if you haven't watched this movie before, I'm going to tell you, there's a couple spoilers in here. And to be honest, I'm not really that sorry. That movie's been out for like 30 years. I'm not kidding. Like it came out in 1990. I looked it up. And so if you haven't watched it yet, you totally should. And what I'm about to say will not ruin it for you. Um, You'll like it. But everyone loves Home Alone. Everyone loves to see the like antics of Kevin McAllister. He's an eight-year-old who uh, finds himself alone at home home alone (laughs) at Christmas time. And uh, because his family accidentally left him behind for their, their Christmas vacation. And so while his new independent life is like the stuff that dreams are made of, think of like eating whatever you want, going through your brother's stuff, jumping on the bed, all of those things. um, There's a catch when Kevin discovers um, that his house is actually being cased by some burglars who want to rob it. He lives in this like really lovely suburb in Chicago. And he realizes that these two guys, Harv and, no, Harry and Marv, those are their names. Um, They're the wet bandits and they are casing his house and they want to rob it. And so, um, you know, Kevin doesn't want this to happen. And one of the favorite parts, like for my family of this movie, is when Kevin um, starts to make a plan to defend his home. I thought I'd show you a clip just to remind you of what that's like.
I have to defend it. You see, Kevin's plan comforts me. I'm sure it comforts you too. Seeing that blueprint unfurled makes it seem completely reasonable that a naughty eight-year-old child is going to be safe and sound and happy in his home because he has strategically illustrated and executed a robust minefield of traps to thwart the wet bandits. And as Kevin continues to like set up all the various booby traps, don't you love it when he has like the micro machines and he puts up the ladder, you think that's it. That's the thing that's going to get them. Um, as he sets them all up, we feel hopeful and we can laugh and smile and, and actually believe that this plan of his is actually going to work. Kevin's going to win. And then he can return to his amazing new life, his bachelor pad, and he can eat microwave dinners and continue to like clip coupons. It's all going to work out. And the plan lets us believe that Kevin is in control of his destiny. His ability to take control of the narrative of his story in the midst of danger is what will ultimately result in his happiness and what he's looking for. And truthfully, it's a little bit how I approach my life as, as well, especially around Christmas time. I'm not much of a long-term planner, much to the chagrin of a lot of my friends and family, but I am a like notorious list maker. Like, I mean lists for everything. I make daily lists and weekly lists. I mean, full disclosure, I sometimes make a list and then I forgot something that I'd already accomplished, so I put it on the list so I can mark it off. I know, I need, I need counseling. But this all started actually almost 20 years ago when I had to have weekly meetings with my mother and she would give me a list of things that needed to happen that week in order to make sure that my wedding was going to happen. We had a really short engagement and it was a lot of like stress and last minute things. And so this list was super important and it's now carried on into like all of my life. Um, but truthfully, like the reason I tell myself that I like these lists because it makes sure that I won't miss anything. And, you know, obviously I have a sense of accomplishment when I check those things off. But ultimately, it actually perpetuates a lie that I am more than happy to believe. And that lie is that I am in control. If I can only manage my day or my week, my month, 
my year, my life effectively and efficiently, I will be prepared and I will be responsible and people will like me and I will be safe. And that is what's going to make me happy. That is what is going to bring joy actually in my life. And just like Kevin's crayon blueprint, this plan works until it doesn't anymore. And sometimes even the best laid plans, um, some, like when, you, when it's all been laid out, something unexpected, um, unavoidable happens. And not only are the outcomes unknown, um, but we don't know how to adjust or react. Or worse, we can't. Sometimes the plan is working and everything that we want to happen is happening. Nothing bad happens. It doesn't screw it up or anything. But then we realize the plan itself isn't bringing the joy that you were actually hoping it would. I mean, there's this touching scene at the end of Home Alone when Kevin has triumphed over those wet bandits and he wakes up on Christmas morning and he looks around and he realizes how empty his life is without his family. The thing he thought he wanted didn't bring him joy after all. You can relate, can't you? You have a plan for the good life, whether you've written it down or not, to be safe and secure, whether it's a checklist that you make every day or not. Relationships, travel, finances, jobs, all different things, good things um, that we envision and work toward to help us, to bring us purpose and fulfillment and joy. But then sometimes that team you thought you wanted to be on loses more than it wins. Or the promotion you got is sucking the life out of you. Or maybe none of that. Maybe it's all going fine, but something seems to be missing. Worse, maybe something has blown up your plan. (laughs) Whether it's something seemingly small like a snowstorm that makes it so you can't go on a trip or, or gather together at Christmas time. Or something big like a relational fall, a fallout, like your family's falling apart or a divorce or a devastating diagnosis. <laughs> what do you do something, when something tragic happens? It brings us back to the lie that I mentioned that I'm so prone to believe in, and I think probably you are too, the lie that control equals joy. And if that's a lie, then how can we be happy? How can we find purpose in the unexpected? How do we find joy? Um, Not just after everything good has happened and we get the result that we want, but in the midst of the plan. Is joy even possible in the middle of adversity? I think when these things happen, either when our illusion of control is shattered or we plan and plan and plan our pursuit of love and joy and peace and all those things and it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to, us as self-reliant human beings come up with a strategy to regain or maintain control. Actually, I've come up with three that I think are pretty common and I would really love it if you would act them out with me, okay? So the first thing we're going to do together is we're going to clench our fists. Our first reaction, I think one of the most common ones, is to clench, to hold tighter when something um, adverse happens that goes against our plans. It's pretty common. When we feel out of control, we do our best to take control back. We grip the steering wheel tighter. We make more plans, contingency and otherwise. We hold on to our kids and we helicopter around them and manage them as opposed to letting them make their own mistakes and deal with the consequences. We make more lists. (laughs) We do more. So that's clenching. 
The second strategy I think that we find a lot when we're out of control is that we resist. So you can put your hands out straight, resist. We dig in our heels. We argue and debate and protest. We look for ulterior motives and, and conspiracy theories. I mean, we've seen this a lot over the last couple of years, haven't we? As people have felt the control that they usually have had over where they go and what they do with their bodies be lessened. We get angry and argumentative and stubborn and even belligerent at times. Okay, so we've clenched, we've resisted. And I think the third thing that is really common for us to do when we are um, out of control or feel out of control is to deny, cover your ears and close your eyes. We hide, <laughs> we screen our phone calls, we ghost people, we stay in our beds, we skip school, we hide out. When things get hard, sometimes all we wanna do is curl up in our beds and pretend it's not there. Or maybe curl up on the couch with a blanket and Netflix, whatever's your thing. Okay, so those are our common kind of responses, aren't they? Clenching, resisting, denying. You know, as a family pastor and as a wife and a mom and a daughter and a friend, I see these reactions play out a lot. Parents, I've seen you use these strategies. In fact, I think you stress about grades and sports teams and music lessons and quality time and girlfriends and boyfriends and you name it for your kids is because you believe the lie that at least in part, your child's ultimate happiness and success and mental health is dependent on you. And students... I think this is true about you as well. I think you worry about grades and college acceptances and extracurriculars because you believe that your success is yours to ruin. <laughs> that if you do something wrong, it's going to blow up everything. Families, I think we see these strategies a lot at Christmas time um, where we like run around and juggle activities and overspend and overeat and, and um, overplan and buy too many gifts and all the things and get togethers because everything we do or don't do is going to either make or annihilate the holidays. What about at our jobs? Man, we spend hours fantasizing about owning our own business or retirement um, because we want to be our own bosses or be out of the workplace because that is when we're going to feel fully appreciated and, um, you know, compensated. That's when we're going to be properly compensated and really we'll be out like out from under the thumb of that out of touch, fill in the blank boss that you've got. All of this actually really comes down to control. And it isn't hard for me to see which posture I tend to adopt in my life. But what about you? I want to take a couple of minutes just now for you to sit quietly in silence, actually, and just to reflect on your own tendencies. A couple different questions are going to come up on, um, on the screen. I'd like you to just take a minute and think about a situation right now that is robbing you of joy, something you are worrying about, that you're scared of. And when you think about that, what is it that feels out of control to you. And then take an honest look. How are you responding to that? Are you clenching tighter? Are you trying to take back control? Are you resisting? Or are you denying?
Now, it's never fair for someone to talk to you about something without admitting their own struggles. And this whole joy in the midst of adversity thing is a really difficult thing for me as well. Um, It isn't, especially as a parent, actually. And it isn't hard for me to figure out what my go-to strategy is. And that's to clench. It's to hold tighter, to overcompensate and make another more detailed list. Now now you're all praying for me about my list making. Um, But to compromise on things like rest and Sabbath to take back control. A good example of this happened just at the end of this past summer when I had a well-intentioned basketball coach mention to me that the team that my son was playing for was going to make all the difference in his um, ability to get scholarships um, as he grew older. Um, Let me just mention that my son is 13 and not even in high school yet, but something about what he said, like triggered something in me and I like went straight into my clenching strategy. I kind of panicked actually. And before you know it, we were taking him to like tryout after tryout. He was making all these teams so that we could like have a choice of which team he would be on. We were spending hours like um, researching scholarships and prep schools and and coaches. We were having phone calls and I'm, I'm following different teams on Instagram and I'm doing all of these things because I needed to solve this problem. Like you know, this is my son's goal. He really wants to go to school and play a sport that he loves. And so I got to, I got to make that happen for him. And, you know, if I don't, well, it's going to ruin everything for him. Like if he doesn't get to do the thing that he loves to do, how's he ever going to be happy? And then, man, if he, if he doesn't get a scholarship, where's he even going to go to school? And if he doesn't go to school, well, how's he going to find a job? And if he doesn't find a job, how's he going to eat? And, and maybe he won't even like meet someone and he won't even be able to like fall in love and start a family. And I was like going down this like path, this rabbit hole of worry. And I know it sounds ridiculous when I say that to you now out loud, but it is a lie that I was believing. I know how silly it sounds. And you might even think I'm exaggerating it a little bit, but I'm not. It was really serious for me. It's so easy to go down like this trail of doubt and fear and worry when we feel out of control. I don't think I'm alone in this. How can this this not knowing and feeling stuck be okay? How can I find joy in the midst of that? You know, we're in a season right now in Christmas where we are actually promised joy. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus's birth is going to be great joy for all people. And so the temptation to believe that all the people in the Christmas story were hopeful and aware of the plan and in control of the narrative, and thus were able to be joyful at Jesus's arrival is true. And that's just not true. In fact, there's another parent, another mom, who was completely out of control in this season. And if there was ever someone that we could learn from um, whose life plan got upended at Christmas time, it is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Before we read our passage today from scripture that recounts the circumstances and climate surrounding the birth of Jesus, I just want to remind you that this story, like we use the word story, but it is not a fairy tale. In fact, like all the biographers of Jesus, um, in particular, like Luke, for sure, make sure to tell us like who the government was at the time when Jesus was born and where exactly this was. He was trying to tell us that this was real, like this is historical. It is not a fairy tale. 
And Mary is not a Disney princess. She um, was probably 13 or 14 years old. Some people believe even younger. And um, she was engaged to be married. She had in an arranged marriage, um, as were the cultural norms of the day. Like right now we're like, are you kidding me? 13 years old. But that's what was normal there. She qualified to get married because she was young. (laughs) She was a virgin. She'd never been married or been with a man before, and she knew how to run a household. So that made her wife material. And she was betrothed or engaged to an older man, but he was probably still a teenager. And his name was Joseph, and she may or may not have even known him, to be perfectly honest. Um, This was a culture where your parents would arrange your marriage and your success, your joy in life, was found in bringing honor to your family, uh, living out the plan that they had put in place for you. So for a Jewish family like Mary's family and Joseph's family, that would mean obeying all the laws taught in the synagogues and found in the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the moral and ethical laws taught in the synagogues by, by their rabbis, by their teachers. So with that in mind, with the fact that this was a real girl, uh, 13 years old, let's read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So did you get that? Mary, engaged to be married because she's never been with a man before, because she is a virgin, is told she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. That's a good one. Can you imagine what was going through her head at that time? I mean, we can see it from scripture, can't we? It says, (laughs) I mean, I think that her first reaction was fear. She was seeing an angel. Like, let's be fair. Have you ever seen an angel? I think I would be afraid too. You know, um, Luke writes that she was greatly troubled. And I think that's how we know a man wrote this. Because if I wrote this, I would say she was freaking out. I think she was probably freaking out. I would be freaking out. So Mary was first afraid and then... She was shocked. I mean, give it up for Mary. Luke says that after hearing of her immaculate conception, of this miraculous thing that had happened, she's like, 
how can this be since I'm a virgin? Like she's just trying to get her head around it. It must've been such a shocking thing to be told. And then I can imagine her head, like, like I told you, the, the rabbit hole you go down. How in the world was she going to explain this? Like how in the world was she going to survive? I mean, she must've thought I'm going to be alone. Jo- Joseph's never going to believe this story. My parents are never going to believe this story. I'm going to be shunned. I'm going to be kicked out. This is like, this is going to bring shame upon my family. I'm going to be alone with a baby and nowhere to live and nothing to eat. And I'll have brought shame and embarrassment on my entire family and me. And I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. I mean, that's the rabbit hole I would have gone down to. Shock and fear. Like how would I have responded to this news, to the annihilation of my life's plan and purpose? So um, like, let me just remind you that the reality of this news, like this unwed pregnancy was not going to make her just a disgrace to her family. It was going to ruin her chances of ever being married again. And that was a big deal because for a woman in those days, if she wasn't married, she had no means of income or anyone to take care of her. She hadn't gone to school. She hadn't learned a trade. She had learned how to keep a house and now she wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. Um, she was going to have to probably resort to a life of begging and dependence on the charity of others. Not to mention it was going to like absolutely devastate any of her relationships with her family, certainly her fiance and her actual faith community. Like this was the end. And so if we remember our three strategies to clench, (laughs) to resist or to deny, what would you have done in that situation? If you were Mary? To be fair, I've had a lot of time to think about this, and I know for sure what I would have done. I would have been clenching, and I've already thought through what I would do. I would have, like, after that angel left, I would have been on my way to Joseph and my parents to convince them that we needed to move up the wedding date. And then I would have just tried to pretend that Jesus was Joseph's baby, because then I wouldn't have had to answer any questions, and I would have kept the whole angel encounter thing to myself and taken control of that narrative. But what about you? Would you have done that? Would you have clenched? Or maybe you would have tried to like resist it. Maybe you would have argued with the angel and told him like, this is a really bad plan. This is a crazy scheme. I'm not in for it. (laughs) Or maybe you would have denied it. You would have gone into hiding, packed a bag and headed for the hills and hoped that no one ever found you again. But let's look at what Mary did. How did she respond? Did Mary employ any of these three strategies? I think that Mary's reaction is maybe one of the most beautiful pictures of a life and a heart that's been submitted to the Father in all of Scripture, actually, because she didn't clench or resist or deny. Instead, she released. She actually said, may it be to me as you have said. That's it. You can do this with me if you want. Open your hands. She accepted it. She accepted that God's plans weren't her plans. And she accepted that though she didn't see it, what the angel said was true, that God loved her and had found favor in her and he knew what was best for her. She didn't ask a million questions, not even when the due date was. Or, hey, angel, can you come with me actually and help me explain this to my parents and to Joseph? She just released the need to control everything and accepted that God, the God that she knew was good and loving and true. And so if this was his plan, that he was going to work out all the rest of the details. It is truly profound. 
And please don't pretty up this story because you know how it turns out. Her reaction is revolutionary. Don't believe that this was going to be at all accepted 2,000 years ago. Like I mentioned before, it was going to change everything for Mary, a girl who had been living in such a way that she had found favor with God. Like she, she was obviously a loving and kind and faithful girl, and yet her whole life plan was blown up. He was giving her a plan that was going to be socially, economically, and relationally devastating for her and for Joseph and for her family, and for his family. I cannot overstate this. This was not good news. This should not result in joy. But Mary accepted it with open hands. How? (laughs) That's the big question, isn't it? How in all the world was she able to do this? I mean, the Sunday school answer is that she trusted God. (laughs) But how did she trust him that much? Why was she able to know and believe that he was going to work this out for her? That his plans really were better than her plans, no matter what she saw at that moment. How could she approach this with such a posture of openness and acceptance and release and joy? How could she do that? And how can we do that? How can we respond to adversity in the same way as her? Well, I think there are actually some clues that can help us from the rest of Mary's story. If we read just a little further in the chapter, um, verses 39, uh, so Luke chapter one, verses 39 um, to 45 says, at that time, Mary got ready. So after the angel left and she had said, may it be to me as, as you have said, the angel left her and she got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So Elizabeth was her cousin. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child who you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished." So after the angel left, what did Mary do? She went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who was also pregnant. She went to see a trusted friend. And Elizabeth, we heard her. She immediately affirmed everything that God was doing in Mary's life. Mary didn't hide. She didn't go into hiding. She didn't keep her struggle a secret. She reached out to a trusted friend. And that friend reminded her of who God was (laughs) and how Mary could trust him. She celebrated with Mary. Elizabeth used words like she called her blessed and favored and loved. Mary found a friend. The next thing Mary did, (laughs) well, she worshiped. Actually, if you read, so the next verses, um, verses 46 through to 55 is actually a song. Um, In my version, it's called the um, Mary song. In other versions of the Bible, it's called the Magnificat. And what that is, is it's basically Mary pouring out her heart to God and thanking him. (laughs) It says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds Um, with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their utmost thoughts. She spent the next time actually just reminding herself of who God um, is and how, what he has done for her and how much he loved her. 
In it, she describes this pregnancy as the greatest blessing in her life that actually for generations, people are going to call her blessed. She didn't stop worshiping because of the adversity. (laughs) She didn't forget God's promises or his character in the midst of the trial, even though everything in her life was not only unplanned, but actually was a ticking time bomb for her. Instead, she worshiped. She drew closer to God and reminded herself of the truth. You know, our worship team is going to come right now and they're going to sing for us a song called Face of God. And it tries to describe what it must have been like for Mary to hold Jesus as a baby, Emmanuel, God with us, in the arms of a 13-year-old. The song reminds us that the Savior of the world was a baby in the arms of a young mom in a stable far from her home. Yet the angels and the world were rejoicing. And as they sing, (laughs) I'd love for you to take this time to just reflect on the majesty, the power, the love of God in your own life, whether he's going with your plan or not.
Okay, so we know that Mary found a good friend, that she continued to worship. And the third thing that Mary did actually was she rested. It says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Mary didn't scramble. <laughs> she didn't um, rush around and try to figure out how, how to fix this. She stopped. She didn't power through or manage or manipulate. She stopped and rested and reveled in God's presence and the love of a good friend. So what would that look like for us today? The truth is, I don't know your story, and I don't know if what, if any, of your plans are bringing you joy or actually bringing you heartache. And I'm not sure if you're struggling or wrestling with something actually truly tragic, something devastating, and I don't want to belittle that at all. I can imagine um, that if something tragic is happening to you right now, that the idea of opening up your hands in a posture like Mary's is maybe one of the scariest things I could suggest. But as we close today, I'd love to be able to pray for you, actually, <laughs> to ask God to help us to change our posture, to give us one like Mary's with open hands that are ready to receive joy. <clears throat> that instead of us clenching our fists, like Mary, open our hands to a good friend um, who can remind us of who God is and how much he loves us. Do you have a friend like that? <laughs> Someone who can come alongside you and rejoice and grieve and talk and listen? And like Mary, instead of resisting God's plan and presence, we actually see her draw him closer <laughs> to her with her open hands. She worshiped and prayed and reminded herself of his character. And she cried out to him, even when she was worried and fearful and shocked. And finally, instead of hiding in denial, but resting instead receiving the rest that actually comes from a heavenly father who just loves you so much. Somehow in the midst of all of this, she made space and margin to be ready for all that was to come in her life. All of these things, good friends, like God's pres presence and rest are the ways that she continually released her grip to receive the joy that only God could give her. And Church Mary could do all this because the news she was given by the angel meant that she, was actually she actually had the gift of God's presence growing inside her in the form of a baby of Jesus. Is that crazy when you think about that? In that case, it was like literally Jesus was growing inside of her. God's son growing and forming and changing Mary from the inside out. But perhaps the greatest miracle is that that is available to us now, today, 
through the Holy Spirit. We too, when we invite Jesus into our lives through the Holy Spirit, He is present within us, changing us, drawing us closer to God, changing our hearts and our minds to be aligned with His heart and His mind, growing Christ's characters within us as well. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, it actually is really simple. You don't have to have a visit from an angel. (laughs) That's good news. And actually, you don't have to know how all of it works. You don't have to understand everything and how it's going to work out. Like Mary, you just receive. So I'm going to lead you actually in a prayer as we close. And if you've never invited Jesus into your life, or, or you have, but you just long for more of him, you can follow along with me and physically participate in these actions. There's nothing magical about them, but I find that when I do something with my body, it helps me to remember and experience the relief of release. Would you pray with me? God, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world. We believe that you love us and you want good and not harm for us. And actually, Jesus is proof that you'll stop at nothing to make a way for us to have a relationship with you. So Jesus, we invite you in into our hearts and into our lives. Would your heart and your mind and your character grow in us and change us so that we can find joy in all circumstances? Would you take our clenched fists? You can clench your fists with me if you want. The ones that tell us that we are responsible and in charge. And instead, would you open them up to others? Would you give us open hands and hearts to have deep and real Um, friendships with others that will point us to you. Jesus, take our outstretched arms that push you away and resist you and open them instead to receive the joy and the peace and the love that comes only from you, to invite you to come close rather than push you away. And finally, God, we need you to take our hands that we use to cover our eyes and our ears and hide us from what is happening and turn them over so that we can rest and revel in who you are this holiday season. For you are where we find our hope. You are where we find our joy. And we, in faith, receive whatever you have for us. Let our hearts cry be, let it be unto us as you have said. Amen.